how to describe it? Oh. Well, um, let us say this, that you are making progress already because number one, you can see that you have anxiety. And number two, that you can say, talk about it. There's possibility. In fact, I would say that your dad and most people who are uptight and anxious don't even know it. They think that that's standard living. He's stuck in the habit so much that he doesn't even aware of it because that's what happens generally when students start to practice Anapanasati. When they're practicing, the one of the early things that they'll notice is the anxiety. And here, you're not even starting a practice and you're already uh, in the knowledge that um, that you're uptight and full of anxiety, nervous. And so congratulations. That's an important thing that I'm talking about is we have to be able to see and recognize what the issues are or we don't have a chance of being able to fix it. And so you're already making progress because you're already able to see the anxiety and that in fact taking a deep breath will actually help with that relaxation. That in fact the anxiety itself is caused by uh, a chemical in the system called adrenaline. There's also cortisol. Now these two things um, give us extra energy in case there's real danger so that we can fly or fight. Mm -hmm. These are built in instinctual uh, situations. But since you have um, anxiety, what that means is that the underlying the anxiety is fear. But there is no place to fly to and there's nothing to fight with and you're just left with all of that stuff that was preparing the body for fight, flight or fight. But if we can take a few deep breaths that um, those uh, because they're energy oriented, the adrenaline itself is designed to give that pump of energy that if you can nourish yourself and come out of the fear, the anxiety will slow down and stop because we don't pump in any new anxiety, uh, um, adrenaline. And on top of that, adrenaline breaks down really quickly. And by taking deep breaths, we actually rid the body of the, um, the adrenaline because we're bringing new oxygen in, that stuff is breaking down and then we're breathing it back out. So you can literally breathe away anxiety intentionally so but the trick is is to not have the kind of thoughts to generate new adrenaline which will then keep the anxiety going yeah oh. so i'm also trying to calm myself to right down right now I can tell that's the way that I'm talking right now is designed for that too. 
is to, to talk to you in a soothing way, taking deep breaths and allowing you to settle out. Thanks. And so, so what we've done just right now is what you would do in practice when you recognize that there's anxiety there, that you just, in fact, you just scored one. Congratulations. Right here and right now, you were able to come out of a lot of the anxiety. It's not nearly as strong now as it was five minutes ago. Is that right? Yeah. That you're not playing with yourself so much. Not playing with my hair, yeah. Okay. And so one of the things then that we can, uh, we can practice basically in two ways. One way is when we are in solitude, we actually take the time to sit down and relax intentionally. And then the other is when we're out in the world dealing with other people, watching that anxiety and start changing our behavior associated around it. Okay, what that means then is we begin to watch the body when it's in motion, as opposed to watching the body when it is still. And when it's in motion, like your body's going to be in motion when we're talking together and you're listening to me. And so with the anxiety will come with the playing with the hair and, and rubbing the face and that kind of thing. So learn to become aware of what your hands are doing and that one of the uh, ways of doing that is by putting a boundary that you don't bring your hands to actually touch your face unless it's intentional. That you don't do it out of habit. And when the habit is kicked off, when you're anxious, when you're anxious enough, you want to guard your face. Your microphone has gotten quite noisy all of a sudden. Okay. That is that is thunder. Um, it is raining out right now, so if you want, I might as well go to my room. No, why don't you just turn the microphone off? Yeah. Sure. And you can turn it back on when you want to talk. And you're doing a lot of communication with me because I do a lot of watching, observing. That in fact, that's what the whole practice is really all about, is learning to look. And um, <coughs> so the teachings of the Buddha are kind of a formalized way of looking at things and it's good for the students to have that introduction so that we can begin to talk about it. That everything around the, uh, the teachings of the Buddha have to do with the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Noble Path. That in fact the Buddha said in several suttas that he only teaches just one thing. That's crazy. Because Buddhism is huge, it's a religion, it's got 10,000 different things in it, right? Well, none of that is what the Buddha teaches. He only teaches one thing, and that is Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. And what that phrase means is, is that 
when we are in a state of dissatisfaction, we can change it. Right here in this present moment. Now, uh, the word dukkha is problematic for the Westerners in several regards. One is, is that it is called suffering. It's translated as suffering. And that's not a good translation. Why? Because the word suffering is a great big word. Like a great big injury. Lots of pain. And that the word dukkha actually just means being dissatisfied. And being in a state of anxiety is unsatisfying, right? You're not really satisfied when you're when you have anxiety. So the whole trick of the teaching of the Buddha is not magical. It is not far fetched. It is not even far into the distance future. But rather, it's something that we can do right here right now <clears throat> which i've already been doing with you in this in this conversation so dukkha dukkha naroda actually unpacks into the four noble truths in the sense that um our dissatisfactions do not come in the form of input in other words, a tsunami or a house fire is not the cause of dissatisfactions. That in fact, a house can burn down and you don't give a flying rip because the house that burned down is one that was in, uh, let us say, the Ukraine and it caught fire and there were people who were there who didn't like it, but you, you don't care. But if it was your house, then you would care. Does that make any sense? It's not the house on fire that causes the anxiety. It's that you care about the house on fire that causes your anxiety. All right. So that's the whole point of uh, that. Uh, the definition of the word dukkha or dissatisfaction Life itself is not dissatisfying. Some people can live a very satisfying, satisfactory life, but most people don't. That in fact, um, uh, there's bumper stickers from the 1980s that says, <clears throat> life is shit and then you die. That's a very atheistic and actually uh, low class atheist way of saying it, is that life is shit, shit. life sucks. Well, guess what? Life sucks only when we're sucking. When we stop sucking, life don't suck. I know all about this because I tried to suck a Mercedes automobile through a soda straw. And I sucked and I sucked and I sucked and I finally got that car. But look how much I sucked trying to get it. And that's what we do. We go around sucking on things. This is called desire or want. And we suck to get our thing. In fact, that's the, the only thing that a tender infant knows how to do is to suck. The tender infant doesn't know how to find a tit. Even a dog, pup, a puppy, just a newborn puppy, 
knows how to find a tit so that they can suck. But humans, they don't even know how to find a tit. They just know to suck. And somebody has to put something in its mouth. So we all start out as a victim. We all start out needing help. Someplace along the line, a human could grow up into be an adult, but very, very few people do. Most of us start off as a child, get a good education as a child, get a job as a child, grow old as a child, go into elderly states as a child, and then die as a child, a victim. But in some societies, they have various things called a rite of passage so that the child knows that now I am adult. But that requires adults around the child to be able to show him what it is to be an adult. And in our society, we don't have very many adults. We have mostly children. And children grow up as children, get married as children, and have babies as children. And so now there's three babies. There's three children in the crew. And that goes way back. So what is this rite of passage that I'm talking about? Well, in the very primitive times, the rite of passage would happen at about the age of six. The six-year-old boy is big enough and old enough to pick up a weapon and go hunting with the big boys, the big guys. And he doesn't stay around mommy, but the children, the babies, but the young boys at the age of six, they're ready to go hunting. In the Western uh, Native American tradition in, in the West, many of the tribes had a rite of passage to where the young guy had to go out. All they would give him is a knife, and he had to go out in the wilderness and, and stay for 30 days, killing what he needed to kill. And, and uh, if he comes back after 30 days, after a moon, after one month, if he can come back after a month in the wilderness, then he's fit for the tribe. He's brave. But we don't have any of that kind of stuff in our modern society. And so there's substitutes for it. One of the substitutes would be getting a college education. OK, now that you've graduated from college, you're a man. A lot of people don't feel that. And so they want to go to graduate school. Maybe they can feel like a man then. But ultimately, we don't get that feeling of being the boss, being mature, being a full adult. And so the, the child graduates from college and goes, gets a job, but he doesn't really change his mental attitude. And the, the teaching of the Buddha is basically to change our mental attitude from being a victim, one who is sucking into a champion. The Buddha was known as a lion. And that's only an attitude change. And that's what we have to do is to change our attitude from being a loser, being insecure, being curious into the boss who knows, who's got it wired, who took a look over and over again and can see clearly. So this is the issue about dukkha is, is that the dukkha, the dissatisfactions keep us in a child state, child mentality. Now, the cause for dukkha 
is the second noble truth, and that in fact most of the teachings of the Buddha have to do with this second noble truth, to give people good roadmaps to find out really what's going on. Because the source of dukkha is that we suck. We have to see how we're sucking. What does that mean is that we want things. Now, if I like something, that's okay. I can like something, I can see it. I can see it in the store, I can like it, I can look at it, and then I can set it back down. I don't need it. But in our society, anything that we like, we want. If I want it because I like it, because it's pretty, because it gives me a pleasant, warm feeling when I see it, then I want to replace that uh, warm feeling of what I see over and over again, which means now I want to bring that thing which uh, I got a very quick, instant pleasure out of. I want to bring it closely. And people will wind up having their, their houses absolutely chock-a-block full of junk. Every item had one instant of pleasure. Then they bought it, and now it hasn't that pleasure anymore. But while we want something, we feel that, oh, I would be better off if I had it. And if I'm better off that I, that I have it, then that means that I'm not good enough right now. Ah, if I want something, then I'm not good enough right now without it, which leads us then back into that state of anxiety in the child's position. So, in fact, greed and ill will, wanting things or wanting things to go away are basically the same thing. Greed and ill will is basically the same thing. The real point is, is that we do that ignorantly. We want things and therefore feel insecure, or we want to get rid of things and then feel insecure. And all of that is done without any knowledge. <clears throat> Subconscious, they call it. And what we're going to be doing is to bring all of that stuff out of the subconscious into the conscious by merely turning the light of awareness onto it to start looking at it. And if you can see it clearly, then you can do something about it. And especially if you can see it clearly in advance, then you can avoid it before it ever gets you. So this is the second noble truth. And the second I, noble truth. Go ahead. I, I'm kind of curious about um, when it comes to sort of things that people don't want to have around, like things that are like you know uncomfortable to be around do you is it so is it possible to it's possible to still be satisfied even if things like is it still possible to be satisfied even if for example there's some like this might be more advanced and might be better for another day but if you have someone i i think i know some people who a few people who are uh might have a disease, um, they are in physical pain, and they want that to go away. That's different. You're saying that's different from like being like, well, I don't really like that maybe my neighbors are being too loud. No, then in fact, pain is something that we deal with mentally incorrectly. That you could say then that sensations in the body are actually like messengers. 
and that they're alerting. So here, here's a clear example. The, the teenage boy has broken his arm and it's in a cast. And then he goes about his life, goes to school and whatever like that. And the arm keeps hurting. Well, what the arm is telling him is, is that, hey, we've gotten some repair work to do here. Leave us alone. And then the, that's why the doctors will actually take the guy in the cast and put him in a sling. Why the sling? The sling has got nothing to do with it. What's really the sling is doing is it's keeping him from moving the arm so that it'll heal. In other words, the, the arm hurts because the kid's stupid. He won't listen to the arm. He's too busy wanting to do his, you know, play the trumpet or write his uh, novel or do his homework or whatever like that. He wants to ignore that his arm is broken. And so the arm hurts and he ignores it and it hurts more and it, and it heals very slowly. But if he would stop moving his fingers and just let them rest, then the arm will heal. And so when the arm is in pain, that's a message to the kid to stay to say, take care of your arm. But we don't. And it keeps hurting. So it's a message. Now, if we see these messages as merely bodily sensations, then we can deal with them wisely. Do what needs to be done, perhaps needing a medicine, need immobilizing a broken arm or whatever like that. But instead, the human does another thing. We invent something called pain. Pain is when we don't like the sensation. A sensation, error how sharp or piercing or throbbing or whatever sensation uh, there is, instead of examining and looking at what the pain is and seeing what the source and the we just simply don't like it we want to get rid of it and we think that we're not well enough that we would be better off without that pain this is why the medical industry hospitals they're there to rip you off because they know you're too stupid to be able to manage a sensation or two but in fact, the primary medicines that are given out in the United States now are um, pain medicines, opiates. Why? Because people don't like pain and they want it to go away and they're willing to pay the medical profession to do that. In the old days, let us say 100 years ago or more, people had to deal with their pain and they could. The Westerners can't deal with pain now, and so the, and the reason for it is is because they don't really have to deal with pain. They can go get a pain pill, which, by the way, has side effects. And so the whole point is, is that we can change our attitude about sensations. And I'm quite good at that. I'm experienced at it. I'm 78 years old now and getting really old and dealing with pain. And I can deal with it. I can handle it just fine. Because I've got experience of dealing with pain. And I don't see it as pain, by the way. I use the word pain for you. Okay. There is no such thing as pain 
what there is is hatred of something that's going inside the body and we don't like it. But in fact, have you ever heard of S&M called sadomasochistic? You ever heard of that? Okay. Sadism is when you enjoy hurting someone and masochism is when people enjoy being in pain. And there's a lot of movies. In fact, um, uh, let's see, which one was it? Oh, the name of the movie was High Anxiety. Mel Brooks movie to where the two people who were running the psychiatric institute were into S&M where they where the guy actually enjoys the pain. So here's the thing. Pain is not always hateful and unenjoyable that one can change the mind and train the mind so that they do enjoy pain, but I don't recommend that. What I recommend is, is to be wise about the sensations. That if it hurts, don't do it. And a lot of people in meditation, they, they'll go into pain because they have the rule, oh, you're supposed to sit still for long periods of time. That's the wrong attitude. The right attitude is, is that you can sit comfortably for long periods of time if you're trained correctly. But instead of training, they go through endurance instead. And they don't like it. And many of them will quit meditation because it gives them pain. And there's no reason for them to have pain because we can avoid it in two ways. One is we can avoid it by not calling it pain. It's just a sensation. Yeah, the knee hurts, but it's okay. On the other one is who said, oh, my knee is telling me that it's in pain right now. Perhaps I should give it what it needs, like giving it some circulation, standing up, moving around, walking the pain off. So wisdom is the way that we deal with pain rather than calling it pain and wanting help from someone else to get rid of it. That the pain can, uh, the sensations of the body can be a good teacher. If we pay attention, if we watch closely. So if we are in fact able to see correctly what causes us pain, what causes us ill will, the things that cause us um, uh, greed and ill will, we can come out of that. And when we do come out of it, in that moment that we come out of it, that's the third noble truth that we can find relief. We can find satisfaction. It's possible. You've been going through various states of satisfaction just here while talking to me. When I make a point and you, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so you're in a whole bunch of better state of satisfaction right now than you were 15 minutes ago when we started talking. So there's a way that we can do this. This is called the Eightfold Noble Path. The funny thing about it is, is in the suttas, it's never referred to as the Eightfold Noble Path. Eightfold Noble Path is something that is kind of a Western thing. Uh, and by m making it eight, it misses the point. But in fact, uh, the practice, the method 
is um, only four points. And then the other five in uh, or the other four of the path are kind of the results of what it's like once we've done the correct practice. So let's look for a moment on what those four things are. The first one, which we've been talking about already, is to look. Now, this is uh, they use the word right noble view, but the word view is often in our language uh, to mean a viewpoint, a world view, <clears throat> a, um, a point of view, a perspective. These are actually all concepts, not actually looking. So we want to make sure that we're talking about looking in the sense of a verb. It's something that we're actively doing, not a view, something that we hold or have. But in fact, while we're holding and having a view, that means that we're not looking because we think we already know. We saw something, we saw it again, and we saw it a third time, and we come to the conclusion we know what it is, and then it changes, and we're stupid again. Now we're stupid, really stupid, because we think we know what it is, and it's changed, and it's not like that anymore. So this form of stupid is called delusional. And many people live their lives in delusion because they think they know, and so they don't have to look anymore. And so the real teaching, now there's a whole lot of stuff that changes so slowly that it lasts a lifetime. So once you know something, you pretty well know it. But one of the things that we can say is, is that the English language is not like that. That you say that you know the English language. And you understand English very well in the uh, uh, the Midwest, but if you go to India and listen to the Indian speak like uh, Indian or to speak uh, English, it sounds really weird, really strange. They have what's called an accent, right? But the point about that is is that English language is not one thing, and we learn the language that we know and we call that English because we learned it at home in the West. And then you go to India, and it's not the same thing at all. So you don't know English. We think we know it, but we don't know it. It's too big. So we need to re rekindle that uh, curiosity. You weren't. You mentioned the word curious. This is actually what we're practicing big time: curiosity to look, to investigate, to figure out what's going on, to make discernments. But we, in order to do that, we have to remember to do it. So the first item on the list that we really need to look at is, can you remember to look? Can you remember to wake up and take a look at what's going on? Here's an example of that is, is that you're, uh, let us say, out in the field, maybe even in a battle scene, and you get hit by an arrow. Now, the reason that you got hit by an arrow is because you didn't see that arrow coming. If you could have seen that arrow coming, you could have dodged it because arrows are pretty slow. Spears are much slower. Bullets are pretty fast. But spears and arrows are slow enough to dodge. You probably even heard as a kid, they played games called dodgeball. Right? If you can see that ball coming, you can dodge it. 
So this is what we mean by remembering to look. Here's the thing. People can be in a dodgeball game and get hit with that ball because they have forgotten that they're in the game. They're thinking about their homework or thinking about having a fight with one of the kids on the field and then blap, and here comes that ball because they're not watching. The ball's in reality. It's in real time, but our awareness is often off someplace else, not paying attention to the game. Well, guess what? We have the game of life, and things are coming at us all the time. Look out, become aware, watch what's going on, and then we can have an easy, happy life. Now, the place that we need to start is inside the mind because we've already picked up a lot of wounds, a lot of arrows, and we keep stabbing ourselves with the mental arrows. And so we need to come out of that, and this is why we go into practice into seclusion to get alone getting into a safe place the joke is is that i recommend the brand new students to not go to the police station to practice anapanasati because the police station believe me is not a safe place and the people who were the least safe are the cops they're on guard anybody comes in here and they do anything in a little bit and they'll just jump right on them because they're terrified. And in fact, terrified people often make the best cops. Are the only cops, the only people who would want to be a cop are those who were terrified. Often they were terrified and they dealt with their terror in high school by being a bully. Instead of being happy because they can recognize that they're terrified and come out of their terror and go live in, and be in a safe place. So here now, you're beginning to wake up to recognize that you're on your porch and the porch is safe. Why should you have to feel like you're in danger when the porch itself is safe? The answer to that is because you went to some police station in your mind and you, you mentally were in a dangerous place. And so you actually talk yourself into being in danger when in fact, in reality, you're not in danger. So this is the Eightfold Noble Path is to wake up and look at what's going on. Because if we do and see that the kind of thoughts that we're having are unwholesome because it leads us into states of anxiety and fear. And if we would have different kind of thoughts and the thoughts would be thoughts of Oh, the porch here is really safe. I am safe. The body is physically safe, and now the mind is talking about being safe. Eventually, within a few moments, the feelings will settle down and you begin to feel safe. Don't feel the anxiety that you did before. And not only that, but the anxiety was such that you wanted to get rid of it which creates even more anxiety because having anxiety is a dangerous thing. And so we want to get rid of it so that we'll feel safe again. So by wanting to get rid of the anxiety, we're actually making it worse. So how can we deal with the anxiety then? Oh, I see that anxiety. Oh yeah, no problem. I don't have to feel anxiety because the room itself is safe. 
and I can think safe thoughts, and then I don't have to feel unsafe anymore. This is the correct way of practicing, is to change our thoughts. And over time, that also changes our attitude. But in fact, the change of attitude and the change of our thoughts are working together all along. So that after you practice gaining safe and secure, and the body is sitting there comfortably, and you're talking, <clears throat> you're talking to yourself about feeling safe and secure and comfortable, then we begin to feel safe and secure and comfortable. So that's how it is with the body actually safe, secure and comfortable and having thoughts of being safe, secure and comfortable. We begin to feel safe, secure and comfortable. And as we begin, go ahead. Oh, thank you. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I feel like this is the part that a lot of the different, the other meditators that I've met, sorry, the meditators that I've met so far or seen uh, don't talk much about changing their mental state or their thoughts. They kind of just say, observe and notice yes. how the thoughts are ghosts like mm -hmm. right know what i mean but that's it's that, better, that's western buddhism go ahead it's better to feel safe and comfortable so that your thoughts are more positive before you try to experience sensory things because if you're if you're experiencing negative things it it just it isn't productive is it like nope right okay so um Perhaps you've heard of the word Mahasi. Because the Mahasi method of meditation is um, an adaptation of a Burmese practice. That in fact, I had a, a, a long video chat with um, a, a friend of mine, Dan Ingram, where he points out that the Burmese, the Mahasi, the man himself was into joy, pleasure, and changing the mind. But somehow or another, when uh, the Burmese method in the name of Mahasi comes to the West, they don't practice the Eightfold Noble Path, the full path. They only practice a little bit of it. The same thing, have you ever heard of the word Gawanka? I have heard you talk about him being a, a fraud, maybe something like that. No, not not a fraud. Not no, not a fraud, but just not complete. The example would be a first grade teacher who teaches arithmetic, but in order to teach arithmetic, the children have to learn the numbers. And so learning the numbers is the first thing. And then learning a little bit about arithmetic. All right, now let's talk about a, a mathematics professor at a university who is teaching calculus or um, uh, let us say uh, numerical analysis or maybe matrix calculus, some of the really heavy duty stuff. That professor absolutely needs for his students to have gone through the first grade with some first grade teacher. In the first grade, 
the numbers, the arithmetic of meditating right. is to put you, yourself in a better right. mood. Well, actually, no. Basically, what I'm saying is, is that the Goenka method was an incomplete method. That he only taught Anapanasati step one, two, and three. And he didn't teach the whole thing. And I'm grateful that students go to them uh, to the Goenka retreats and get some establishment because they do start to practice mindfulness. Except um, the word mindfulness in English uh, is translated from the word sati. And the word sati actually means more to remember. All right, so Goenka says, when the mind wanders away, never mind, start again. So he's a big, big fan of sati. To remember to keep coming back, to remember to keep coming back to the meditation. All right, the Mahasi method has that. And it also has the noting, to look, to observe. Both of these items are on the Eightfold Noble Path. But there are only two of the items on the Eightfold Noble Path. The third item on the Eightfold Noble Path is the one that you're mentioning that is missing in most of Western Buddhism. And that is right effort, right noble effort to make a change, to recognize that whatever I'm thinking right now is causing anxiety. Let me have some better thoughts so that the anxiety will dissipate. And if I think and if I have thoughts, I hate this anxiety and I wish I knew what to do with it. It's just going to stay there. But if you have the uh, the the change to make is there there now It's OK. The anxiety is there. We can take a few deep breaths and watch it and it'll just take care of itself and fly away. No problems, no worries. See, we've changed our speech. We've changed the kind of thoughts that we're having from unwholesome anxiety producing thoughts into happy, wholesome here now thoughts. Right here, right now, everything is okay. Back then and over there, it's dangerous. But right here on the porch, everything is all right. Everything is easy. This is the third aspect of the April Noble Path that is not well practiced and not well taught in Western Buddhism. But that's not the end of it. There's an additional point, and that is the Sama Sankapa, which is something that you and I have already talked about in the sense of changing your attitude. We have the attitude of a, of a loser, the attitude of uh, I need help, the attitude of I can't do it, the attitude of poor me, a misery party. OK, that's what the child has. But if we can remember to look and to say, oh, that causes anxiety. Let me take the effort to get rid of it. And now that I'm rid of it, guess what? I have just been able to get rid of it. That's a success. I can do this. And that's the Samus and Kappa, the item number four, is, is to be able to see I can do this. So remember to look, to make a change, and to congratulate. 
to remember, to look, to change, and congratulate. To remember, to look, to change, to congratulate. And we do that over and over again to make those changes, to make those changes, and that begins to integrate the mind. That normally we're a crowd. We're a crowd inside. We can't make up our mind. We tell ourselves to do something, and then we say, I don't want to do it. Oh, you've got to go take out the trash. Oh, I don't want to take out the trash. And so we feel bad because we're not uh, living up to our own standards. We're not living up to our own orders. But when the mind becomes integrated, we no longer live according to all of the rules, shoulds, woulds, and ought to be's. And we look at what's happening right now to determine what needs to be done right now. For instance, I look at that trash and I say, it needs to be taken out. And so I take it out. I liked how you simplified it to four steps, like to remember, to look at what is, to, uh, what was it, to assure, and then to congratulate. Because mm-hmm. it's right, it's rasati, which is to look, or to remember, and then you look at what the thoughts and experiences that you're having are, and then you move away from the anything that is causing anxiety, because you can decide what thoughts are and aren't valuable to you and then you congratulate yourself for doing that because now Mm -hmm. and so now you're beginning to be successful to be able to change the mind to throw the anxiety out that's worthy of a celebration that's worthy of a yeah i can do this so that's that congratulations that's the celebration And we want to add that to the practice. We're not going to celebrate when we got nothing to celebrate. We don't celebrate anxiety when it goes bye-bye. We can say, ooh, ah, and we can rest because it's gone. So these, these four things then bring the fifth item on, which means the integration or the unification of the mind, where all of the parts are functioning correctly within the mind. And that's the fifth item. The next three are easy. We can deal with them easily in the noble way. But in beginning, beginners, ordinary children, um, in every religion, even in Buddhism, they give the kids a bunch of rules. They call them precepts in Buddhism, which is not to take, uh, we train ourselves to not take life. We train ourselves not to take things that are not given to us. We train ourselves not to uh, uh, have sexual misconduct. Okay, so these are the things that they talk about. Here's the point, that if the mind is already noble, if the mind is already whole, then we don't want anything. And if we don't want anything, then we're unlikely to go kill somebody to get it. If So, you see... Normally what happens is is that we have to restrain ourselves in order to do what we're told to do. What we're training the mind to do is to act naturally, wholesomely, so that we don't have to avoid bad behavior. It's just not on our radar because our mind is wholesome. I don't want anything. I'm not about to go gossip or tell bad stories about somebody over there when I'm already complete and whole on my own. I'll only trash somebody because he hurt me or something. 
So this is the Eightfold Noble Path. We're going to have right speech and right uh, actions simply because we're in a, a mentally wholesome state. And so this is the real practice is to make that change and then congratulate ourselves for it. And so this is the basic practice to wake up, to look at what's going on. Oh, I see that anxiety. And what was I just thinking about? Oh, I was thinking about something my dad said, thinking about the work I've got to do, whatever it was that you were thinking about must have been the cause of the anxiety that you can see now. So make a change to those kind of thoughts and say, I don't have to think about that. I don't have to think about school. I don't have to think about family. I can sit here and enjoy the moment. And everything is good. So we recommend that here's the thing. A lot of people say, oh, we should practice Anapanasati or practice meditation an hour a day. So you sit down and 30 minutes into the sitting, I wish that bell would ring. And now we're not meditating at all. But in fact, we're just enduring the rule of you got to sit for an hour and the bell tells you when the hour is over. This is not conducive to healthy practice, a much better way. And to do it is to do it a little bit often every day, all through the day. So look at it like this. That you spent your whole life in uh, hindrances. Hindering you from feeling the way that you want to feel. Whole life like that. And to now we're beginning to practice coming out of those hindrances. But we're only doing it for an hour a day, leaving 23 hours a day of more hindrances. Which is going to win this? A long, long history of hindrances and 23 hours a day of hindrances or the new kid on the block? So with that mentality, we have to change that idea from taking that hour a day all at once and break it up into smaller pieces to do it more often say six sessions for 10 minutes and one of the sessions could be when you wake up in the morning as soon as you get out of bed another session would be when you go to bed at night to lay in the bed and just have some pleasant happy thoughts or go ahead when i so i mentioned that i'm not very serious about practicing and i say that because i don't think i've ever i don't think i often don't do I do okay with formal meditations, like videos you find on the internet and such, but when it comes to, I guess, what you're talking about, I didn't have all the pieces before because I didn't really know all the, the steps of looking, examining how that happened, changing your attitude, congratulating yourself on that. I didn't really have that before uh, altogether. <clears throat> so I think, uh, do you, I would think that I'm going to just try to do it as often as I can whenever I remember to. Yeah, whenever you remember, that's what we're training. But we want to start off with six times a day of actually sitting down with the intention. I'm going to spend the next 10 minutes remembering to look at anxiety, to look at the body, to look at my feelings, to look at the mind and to make some changes. Okay. Six times a day for 10 minutes. I know as I'm repeating it, you need to remember 
to practice. And the way to remember to practice is by setting a schedule. So that you'll have an anchor. Like for instance, as soon as you wake up in the morning to practice after you go to bed at night before you go to sleep, that's a good anchor to practice. Another anchor would be, let us say, um, coffee break. Or maybe between classes. If you've got uh, two classes in the same building, then you don't have to spend 10 minutes walking from class to class. You can spend that 10 minutes just sitting on the floor under the stairs or something and just enjoying the moment. OK, so six times a day we want to practice and then later we begin to have that sati going so that we can wake up and remember throughout the day and pretty soon we can fill it in. So what we actually want to do is to develop the skill of remembering because that's the one that's the most difficult. To remember when you need it. All right, that's when that's it. We want to remember. When we need to remember. Instead of just going down the old path. To remember to wake up to remember to look to remember to wake up and look over and over and over again. So this is a skill. In fact, this is why one of the reasons why we breathe long is because we have to remember to breathe long with every in breath. One after another, and then we have to remember to make it an out breath. So it's very easy. This this memory system is just remember to do something to remember to take a long breath, to remember to take a short breath, and then to remember to have a smile when the teacher's yelling at you. To remember, to remember, to remember, this is the basic skill that we have to be uh, developing. But also the skill of looking gets better and better. A lot of students will say, I don't know the difference between a wholesome thought and an unwholesome thought. Well, there's three kinds of thoughts. There's unwholesome thoughts that are downright unwholesome, like thinking about hurting someone, thinking about uh, uh, getting revenge, thinking about getting even. Then there are thinking about getting something, thinking about harming something or getting rid of it. So all of those kinds of thoughts are unwholesome. Thoughts that are downright wholesome would be, wow, I've got nothing to do now. The job has been well done. I'm free now. I can relax. These are the kind of thoughts that are wholesome. And then there are 10,000 thoughts between that. The third group is that which we have not yet determined whether they're wholesome or not. So the beginner will begin to examine that intermediate group of thoughts to figure out for themselves whether it's wholesome or not. And if there's a doubt about it being wholesome, it's probably unwholesome. Let's change it into something that we know for sure is wholesome. I think that's the part I was getting stuck on because I was just thinking that sometimes it's hard to tell because I might have a right intention behind something, but examining the nature of thoughts and figuring out if they, I guess, what would be the rule, whether, I mean, hmm. Like, for example, people say that memories are thinking about positive memories. They're like, oh, I mean, that was a great time, but it's not that. I mean, but it, if it was great, then we then we long for it to be back again. And so we go into greed. If it's a pleasant yeah. thought, we go into greed. And if it's an unpleasant thought, we go into ill will. 
about the past. So, in fact, thoughts about the past in general are unwholesome, and thoughts about the present moment are generally wholesome. Wow, I'm glad I don't have to think about that is a wholesome thought for right now. Right now, I don't have to think about that. I don't have to think about that. Yesterday, Aunt Susie and I had a fight, and I'm sitting here and practicing, and I'm thinking about Aunt Susie, and then it I wake up. Hey, Aunt Susie's not even here. Why should I be thinking about her? I can sit here and relax and be free from her. But normally, when we have an argument with somebody, we plot and we plan, and we're ready for round two, and we've got all of our ammunition together, right? That's how we normally do after an argument is we want to do over rather than saying it's gone. It's in the past. Forget it. Drop it. Right now, I'm going to feel good instead. So right now I can feel good. That's the way to look at it. Right now I can feel good. I don't have to think about what happened in the past. Right now I feel good. Right now everything is okay. These are the kind of thoughts that we want to have. No place to go, nothing to do. The spring comes and the grass grows by itself, all by itself. Doesn't need my help at all. Another word that we can use is not my business. Things happen at school and people wonder, really well, what's going on over there? And we can say, oh, well, that's whatever it is. It's not my business. I don't care. I'm having too much fun right here, right now, than to worry about what's happening way over there. Uh, uh, points like global warming. That's not my business. Politics. That's not my business. Who's president? That's not my business. Trump, that's not my business. I don't have to worry about politics. That's not my business. My business is to sit here and feel good. My business is to be wholesome. And so we begin to see that that's a very wholesome thought, not my business. Your dad is full of anxiety. Guess what? That's not your business. Your business is to see your own anxiety and deal with that by changing. I agree, but I someday wish I could be, wish I could help him somehow, but that's a whole Yes, and, the, and, and wishing to help somebody else and not able to do it, that's a loser's thought. I wish I could do something. Oh, poor me. The better point is, is that right now, that's not my business. Right now, my business is to get my own mind straightened out. How can you possibly get your dad out of anxiety when you're still in it yourself? That's like two drowning people. Are they better off being close together, touching each other while they're drowning or having them 10 feet apart? In fact, they'll hurt each other. If they're both drowning, they'll, um, lifeguards are like that, you know? When the lifeguard is trying to uh, save somebody from drowning, you got to get them from behind. If you get them from up front, they'll beat the tar out of you. They'll stand on top of you. They'll do anything to keep alive. And the lifeguard suffers. 
lifeguard's got to know what he's doing to save that guy from drowning. <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. I have to deal with myself first. It's yes, exactly right. You've got to learn how to swim before you can save someone from drowning who doesn't know how to swim. So you learn to swim first. Keeping your head above water. Watch what's going on. Don't get drowned. Don't look like you've got to go save other people from their drowning when you don't know how to save yourself from drowning yet. <clears throat> Learning to swim by remembering to take a few strokes and, and go, go someplace. Get out of the state that we're in now. Make a change and then congratulate ourselves. Wow, I'm glad I'm out of that. And we keep practicing those four things over and over again with little thoughts like, never mind, start again. Yeah, I was drowning. Never mind, start again. Start paddling already. Takes the right effort. Let's get out of this stuff. Yeah, I will definitely start setting some times during the day to practice and I'll try to do whatever it I can. Excellent. Make it my intention. All right. Well, let's finish now and uh, you go practice this and then later uh, give me a call, maybe in a few days or a week. And also uh, get the benefit out of hanging out on the uh, the Sangha groups on um, uh, Skype. You'll find some new friends there. Guys who are already practicing and doing this, who've got some of their own uh, skills and techniques they can share with you. Like you've already been in a conversation with Laurent. What? Oh, Laurent oh, on uh, Skype UK, I think. But he might, it might have been on the Skype US. This morning, right before you called me, is what I'm referring to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you can go back on Skype and review what I'm talking about. You'll find lots of friends there. Sure. Dhamma friends. There's also a um, Discord group of Dhamma friends. I'm in, I'm in that. Pardon? Oh, I, I All right, so go um, go play with our uh, internet groups and also to remember that you're already OK. You're fine. Right now, everything is fine. You're good enough right now. Thank you. Begin to have that winner's mentality, that that full adult. You're the boss of your own life. You're the emperor of the of your own pile of dirt. Get that mojo, get that attitude going. Come out of that victim's position of I don't know and I'm not sure into I've got this wired. All right, should I hang right. up now or? Yeah, I, 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 thank you. I appreciate right. this. OK, well, we'll see you next time. See you. Bye-bye.